Would you pray with me, church? Father, we just thank you that you allow us to be here today. And Father, it's always a privilege to gather together with, with your church, even in difficult seasons and in times of struggle. Lord, we, we know that no matter how difficult this life may get for us, that you have taken off the, the main pain and the main edge of this life, Lord. Because you've loved us, because you cared enough for us, while we were still strangers and far away from you, you, you provided for us an opportunity to, to know your son. And by knowing him, we, we can know you. Father, we don't understand that kind of love. Today our world celebrates Valentine's Day, Lord, and we, we think about what it means to be in love. But God, you showed us what it means to be love, to love with an unconditional and serving kind of love. Father, I just pray that, that today we might grasp what it means to love you and what it means to love one another, that, Father, we might be able just to share that in this broken and dark world that really doesn't have a clue. Fathers, we open your word today. I pray you would open our hearts what it is you have to say to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is Valentine's Day, isn't it? And I hope all of you guys have... Uh, have bought your Valentine's a Valentine here. If you haven't, it's not too late. Um, just try to act like you meant to. Um, buy it late. I don't know. Uh, but uh, but I, I hope, uh, hope, everybody, uh, hope everybody has a great day today. We, we are going to talk a little bit about love today, and uh, that's kind of predictable, right? I'll bet you got up this morning and like, I don't know what Jason's going to preach about, but I'll bet it'll have something to do with love. But it, that's not a hard thing to do when you're preaching through Scripture, because quite frankly, majority of Scripture has a message about love somewhere attached to it. It's because it's, it's the very nature of who God is and who God calls us to be. It's just a, a part of, of the whole intention of Scripture. It's just written there. It's an undercurrent that we see from Genesis through the book of Revelation. There's this loving concern of a Heavenly Father for His creation. And if you were here with us last week, you might remember that we, we took a look at a passage of Scripture insignificant in some ways. It, it's in Luke, the ninth chapter, verse 51. And, and it's just a passing thought as Luke is laying out the chronology of Jesus' life. But when he shares that, we realize that it's actually something far more important than what it might look like on the surface. Because it simply says that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. Here in Luke 9 and 51, Jesus decided, it's, it's now time for me to, in a sense, shift gears. Now, it's going to be six months or better before Jesus is at the cross. And, and this trip that he's taking from the place where he is to the place where he's going, Jerusalem, is certainly not a six-month journey away. You could make it in a matter of days if you were determined to. But Jesus is about to enter into this kind of meandering sort of journey in which he, he, he teaches the disciples and those who are closest to him what it means to do what he does in the world. What it means to, to, to really be the hands and feet of God in a, in a very broken and very troubled place. And, and this morning, we're going to take a look at the second of, of kind of those big moments that happen here in Luke, from Luke 9 um, through Luke 22. We're going to be in Luke, the 10th chapter this morning. 
And I think it's probably, by and large, one of the most probably quoted and often told stories in all of the New Testament. And certainly, this morning, none of us are going to be probably shocked. Most of you guys have been in church for a lot of your life. None of you are going to be like, Jason, I've never heard this story before. You've heard it. If you've been to Sunday school for more than a year, you've probably heard this story. But it asks us a really important question. It asks us how we how do we view the people that we live together with in life? Do we view people as an inconvenience or do we view people as an opportunity to serve? There's a joke among preachers, right? <laughs> and uh, It's probably not just a preacher joke, but there's a joke among preachers that church would be a wonderful place to work if it weren't for the people, right? And uh, a lot of preachers, you'll hear them say that. They'll all get together and they'll be, be like, you know, church would be a great job if, <laughs> if it wasn't for the people. But the crazy thing about that is, in some of you who are school teachers are probably thinking the same thing. It would be great to teach school if it wasn't for the kids, you know? It would be great to work on cars if it wasn't for the cars. No, wait a second, you wouldn't have a job. And that's the point, right? Uh, that, that people are, are our business. I can't talk this morning. And, and how do we look at them? The parable of the Good Samaritan is a, is a parable in which Jesus challenges those that are around him to look at people very differently. And, and in a way, Jesus changes a question. He changes the question from who is my neighbor to who is neighborly. And we're going to take a look this morning at how he, how he makes that transition. The parable of the Good Samaritan is really a parable of just three big questions. And we're going to take a look at those three kind of questions together. But let's set it up in Luke, the, t- the 10th chapter, in verse 25, where, where Luke does. And Jesus is, on a, is, is out teaching here. And it says that in Luke 10, 25, that a, that a lawyer, a religious professional, comes up to Jesus. And uh, he's not a lawyer in a sense that we think of a lawyer where he's trying cases in court. This was, a, this was an Old Testament lawyer. This was a guy that understood the, the intricacies of the old law um, and had made something of a career of understanding that. And these people existed in that time. So if you had a question about what God's will was, you would kind of go to this kind of a, of a teacher or a lawyer or a studier of the old law. And so this man comes up and he, and he put Jesus to the test. And he's probably been sent here because they're, uh, they're trying to trip Jesus up. And so he's thought up to himself a great test question. He asks Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a really good question, isn't it? I think all of us would look at that and say, no, that's a great Sunday school question. And uh, it's a good question for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? What do I need to do to prepare for things after this life? Most of us are, well, a lot of us just aren't really good at preparing for the next big thing. We, we're, kind of, we're kind of in a mode of where we're kind of looking like what's right in front of us. What do I have to take care of today? What do I have to take care of in the next hour? What do I need to do in this moment? And it's important for us to on occasion kind of pick up our eyes a little bit, look around and ask ourselves, am I ready to meet the inevitable? We don't like to think about that, but death is a part of every human being's story that has lived thus far. And as far as we know, it's going to be the part of everyone's story until that generation that's alive when Jesus comes and takes us home again. There's going to be some people that avoid death, but the vast majority of, human, of humans have lived, have died. And so what do I do to make sure that I'm prepared for that next big phase? The first question that's asked in this story is a super important one. What do I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, the reason that the lawyer asks this question is predictable, right? Because there's a lot of things and a lot of places that Jesus could go to answer this question. And what I think the lawyer is trying to do is he's trying to get Jesus to step into one of those places. And as he does, he's going to try to trip him up. That's the, the plan right here. He's going to fail, but they, a lot of them tried from this, in this six-month period. And uh, what Jesus knew was is that the question was a good question. But you notice as Luke sets that up, he said he came to test him. He, he wasn't really asking Jesus, hey, what do I need to do to make sure I'm right with God? He was setting Jesus up to fail. The question was a good question, but the intentions were not. And Jesus decides that he's, gonna, he's going to deal with that. And so he returns the question with the question, which is a great way to teach, right? And it was, was the way that they did a lot of of, of teaching in those days. He asked him, he said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the the lawyer answered back and he said, well, and he gives him two things that are in the heart of every Jewish person. This was the most basic answer, and good answer, but the most basic answer that he could give. He, He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two commandments that he gives. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's an expert in the law, and he obviously already knew, or should have known, I know he did, know the answer to this question. But Luke is recording this because Jesus is trying to flush out his motive. Why do you come up and ask me the answer to a question that you have known since you were a kid? What is the greatest commandment? You you know that, right? Why are you asking this? And so Jesus returns that with a a question. This was the way rabbis taught. It wasn't that Jesus was being trickery or playing trickery or avoiding this. This is how rabbis taught. And incidentally, it's a very good way for us to teach and learn today, right? I hope you do this with yourself. When someone says X, I hope you ask yourself, why is that? Why is it so? Why is that the correct answer? Or if your kids come up and say, hey, Dad, what about what's the answer to this particular thing? It's a whole lot better to walk them through, say, what do you think it is? And then figure out where they're right or where they're wrong. That's what Jesus is doing here. And rabbis were good at that, in that time at really guiding the discussion using questions. And I think it's a good thing for us to learn even today. And his answer is solid, as we pointed out. Um, and Jesus, in fact, agrees with it. <laughs> he says, well, you gave a, a good answer. And how do we know what well, Jesus gives the exact same answer the last week of his life in Matthew 22? when he's asked the same question, right? And he, he says, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers it back the exact same way that this guy does, to love God, to love others. That's pretty much what this guy said. We've shortened it, but that's exactly what this guy says. And, and, and this answer is a combination of two Old Testament passages that every Jewish person knew. Deuteronomy, the, the, the sixth chapter, verse five, and Leviticus nine and verse 18. And it really deals with the two kinds of ways that we worship God. We, we describe it today with a little bit different terminology. You've probably heard this used before, but our vertical worship and our horizontal worship. And these concepts, guys, are not just concepts that maybe we've come up with in the 21st century. These are concepts that are as ancient as God's relationship with his people. From the very beginning, you, you recognize that, that, that even Abraham, and before Abraham, people understood that there was kind of two components to worshiping God. There was a worship to God between them and God, their vertical worship. 
But then there was their behavior toward the other people that they lived with, which was their horizontal worship. And Jesus takes this man on that same tour. He said, well, how would you answer that question? And he starts off with vertical worship. Deuteronomy 6, chapter and verse 5 is what the Jewish people call the Shema. And, uh, and they would say this every day. It's kind of in since like our John 3.16. Most everyone can quote, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's a verse that most of us learn. We learn that when we're very young. Jewish young people learned the Shema. Hear Shema. That's what that means right there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart with all of your soul, or with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And that was the Old Testament version. Now, it's interesting. I, I just point this out because sometimes Bible, um, Bible critics will point out that this, this lawyer here actually quoted to Jesus rather differently than the Old Testament law has this quoted. And there's a good reason for that. Maybe some of you notice that. That the lawyer, when he answers back, he gives, in Luke's count, four different characteristics that we worship God by. The Old Testament in Deuteronomy says the heart with all of your, with all of your uh, heart, soul, and might, or strength sometimes is a word that's used there. And then when Luke receives this rendering or gives it to us, he says heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason for that is, guys, that, that the Greeks had a different word um, in, the, in the two texts. And Luke's um, Luke's readers, some of them may be Greek, and he's explaining that there's a difference in the Greek language between mental strength and physical strength, all right? The Hebrews did not have that difference. They just thought of strength as being strength, it was the entirety of a person. But the, the Greeks were a little bit more philosophical, and they said, well, some people are physically strong, and some people are mentally strong. We would say some people are physically strong, and some people are smart, all right? Or they're intellectual. But, 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 so as Luke is kind of explaining this, and probably as the lawyer, being a trained person, explained this to Jesus, he just naturally explained both parts, the intellectual strength and the physical strength. In the, in the Jewish world, the, the heart was the center of all feelings, and still today we kind of think of that, right? We think of our, our heart being the seat of the emotions. Actually, it's interesting, but in the Hebrew world, the heart of, or the seat of the emotions was in their stomach, if you can imagine that. You get nervous, you have butterflies in your stomach, you get bad news, you have a sick, falling feeling in your stomach, so they're like, man, the seat of your emotions must be in your intestines right there. Now we know it's in our mind as, as a little bit more scientifically trained people, but uh, but, but this idea of, of having mental strength and physical strength tied together, it, it's, it's, it's understandable for us. Our strength represents our resources, and really that's what the text is saying, right? It's saying that we serve God with everything we have, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our resources, all of our strength, everything that's at our disposal, both our intellectual abilities and our physical abilities to work and to do different things. In the modern Western world, we automatically assume that love is an emotion rather than an action. And, and certainly in, in the world that we live in today in the United States, it's that, it's that case. And so it's, it's easy for us sometimes to feel like that we are loving God when we're not putting into practice what God said would honor Him best. And that would never have flown to an audience of people that Jesus was teaching in the first century world. 
That's why Jesus often would repeat this. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I say. If you love me, you follow me. That's literally what his text is. In fact, we sometimes forget this, but when he's giving out the Great Commission, Jesus says that your first job is to go into all the world and make disciples, to make followers, people that are willing first to follow Christ, whatever the cost. No one who has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Each one of you must daily take up your cross and follow me. That's the kind of idea that Jesus approached this with. And it's important that we understand that the vertical worship is a super important part of how we love God. If we really want to love God, we've got to be willing to do what God says. Now that's easy on some occasions. But for every one of us in this room this morning, that becomes very different in other occasions. Because all of us have places in our life where we're, we're pretty comfortable and we're pretty confident in our relationship with God. But we also have things that right now, if we're honest, as we hear this, there's something in the back of our mind that's nagging at us. And it's been there a long time. And we know this is something that God's calling me to do, but I don't want to. I don't want to give up that part of my life. I don't want to surrender that hurt. I don't want to forgive that insult. I don't want to extend generosity to that person. It's different for all of us, but it's real for all of us. One of the greatest challenges that we face is being willing to recognize that our love for God is represented in our willingness to follow God. Our love for Jesus is, our, is represented in our willingness to follow what he calls us to do. You can sing a million songs. You can write beautiful poems. You can attend church services your entire life. You can give of your financial resources until you're destitute. You can be the most smart, intellectual, and capable person in the entire world, but if you don't fully surrender your life to God, Will your eternity be with him? Never forget that the original question, that the, that the whole story of the Good Samaritan is based on church, is the original question asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There are three questions in this text, and each of them is very, very important. What do I do to inherit eternal life? The second question is one that follows that. In fact, uh, let me, I skipped a verse and I want to share this with you really quick. First John, the fourth chapter in verse 20. John just kind of lays this out probably far better than I can. So let me read it as we, as we move on. He said, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. This <laughs> is one example of this and it's just such an obvious one. I chose this text. For whoever does not love his brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. He who has given us this command, anyone who loves God must love their brother or sister. So there's this idea that, that, that Jesus poured into the hearts of his disciples. Luke writes um, it, it, the, the text we're looking at this morning, but John, years later, is writing back to the church, and he says, guys, if you say you love God, but you don't love the people that are a part of the family of God, you lie. You're a liar. Now, that's pretty 
It's pretty brisk right there, right? That's pretty straightforward. I, I don't think I would be willing to say it with that strength, but I'm not writing the Bible. I'm just quoting to you today what John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, said. If we don't love, if we hate a brother or sister, but we claim that we love God, we're a liar, period. And then he explains that, for if you don't love your brother or sister whom you've seen, how can you love of God who you've not seen? If you don't understand the basics of loving people right underneath your nose, then how can you ever think that you love a God who you haven't even seen before? Now, that lawyer is sitting here in the middle of this, uh, of, of this reply or his middle of his answer, and he's thinking. He's a sharp cat, right? And he's thinking back about this, and he's thinking to himself, you know what? I know what Jesus is doing here. That slick guy right there. He asks me a question. I have to give an answer. (laughs) How do you inherit eternal life? And he's going to say, well, there's that vertical worship and then that horizontal worship. How do we love one another? All right? How How do we love the people that are around us? And that's a super important thing as well. My notes are all off this morning, so you guys are going to have to give me some some, uh, grace here. Um, Leviticus, the 19th chapter, and verse number 18 is is the the text where this comes from, where he said, you got to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, it goes like this. He said, you shall not take out vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then as God finishes that text, he says this. I am the Lord. How many of you guys have watched The Mandalorian? Anybody watch Star Trek? Yeah, Star Wars. All right, a couple of us are Mandalorian nerds. All right, there's one of the opening episodes. I love this. There's this little guy, and he's out there in the the plane. And every time he finishes saying something, he says, and he's, he's done. He doesn't want to have any more discussion. He doesn't want to have any more argument. He turns, and he says, I have spoken. Right? And he just turns around and he walks off again. This is the way it's going to be. I have spoken. And uh, that's exactly what God is saying right here. He said, I-, I don't want any debate about this. I'm not interested in your reasons or your explanations as to why you can't love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. I call the shots. Do it. So, so there's this, this absoluteness right here, right? The lawyer's coming to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, let's have this, this debate so I can trip you up, right? And Jesus said, well, you tell me what the greatest commandment is. Well, we all know it's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, horizontal worship, as yourself, right? And we just took a look at what John said in 1 John where he said, if you don't love your neighbor, then how can you ever think that you love God, And that lawyer recognizes what Jesus has done. And he says, let me justify myself here in verse number number 29. Then who is my neighbor? He's He's a sharp guy. He's a quick thinker. And he's like, here's the question. And he's right. Here is the real question. Who is my neighbor? Who is it that I have to love as I love myself? Who is it that I have to extend forgiveness to? Has God extended forgiveness to me? Exactly who is this neighbor? Now, this is a point in this debate where all of us would probably be washed up, right? Because we're not Jesus. And and certainly probably the lawyer thought, okay, I have him boxed in now, right? This This is an impossible question. But just in the moment when you think you've got God trapped, whenever they thought they had Jesus boxed in, God shows us that his thoughts are way above our thoughts and his mode of working is way above our mode of working. And so Jesus says, well, well, 
let me tell you a parable. Question number two is this. Who is my neighbor? In the Greek, there were two words for neighbor. And I'm trying to be nerdy with you today, but this is a kind of a technical kind of conversation, right? Jesus and his lawyer are having a very technical conversation. And they're using very technical language right here. And they're dealing with this text very technically. And we miss something if we don't catch that. There, there's, a, there's a word for Greek that just means the neighborhood, like, like we might say, well, who is my neighbor? And we're talking about well, everyone in Forest Park, or probably we would say everyone in Crowley. They're all my neighbors. They're people that live in the same part of the country as I do. That's one Greek word. But the Greek word that this man chose to use here was a Greek word that had very, very small, narrow meaning. It meant the people that are just right around me, the people that are very near to me. Kind of an idea of a 36-inch of, of a circle of people that are around me. Those are the people who are my neighbors. The people that, I, that I'm bumping up against, the people that I have everyday kinds of access to. And Jesus lets him have it. He doesn't get in an argument with him. He said, okay, well, let's, let's tell a little story. In verse number 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus paints us a picture of a very broken soul, of a guy who's, who's, been, who's been emptied out, who is making a trip in a very, very dangerous part of the country. Incidentally, that road is, was nicknamed at that time the Road of Blood. Um, it, was, it was a road from, from Jerusalem and down to, to Jericho. It was through a very remote part of the country, still is even to this day, a part of the country that had a lot of mountains on each side of it. There were a lot of caves, and it was just full of bandits. And it was known to be a dangerous place to travel. But it wasn't unreasonable for people to travel there. Um, the Jer Jer today, uh, even today, Jericho is a place that is uh, kind of off limits to a lot of Jewish people. It's a Palestinian territory. I think there's big red signs as you're getting into town that says if you're a Jew, you're not a allowed to be here. But there were a lot of Bible characters that were from there. Zacchaeus was from there. Blind Bartimaeus, you might remember, he was, from, uh, he was healed there. Herod had beautified the city, and it was the kind of place that people wanted to visit. So this guy wasn't doing something crazy. He was leaving Jerusalem. He was going down to visit in, in, uh, in, a, in a town where a lot of people would in the city of Jericho. But as he was making that trip, maybe he hadn't planned well, or maybe it was just coincidence that he fell among thieves. They beat him up nearly to death, took all of his possessions, and left him at the side of the road. Now remember, Jesus is answering a question, who is my neighbor? And this guy wants to say, my neighbor is just the people that are right around me the people that are a part of my family or my friend or my peer group. And so Jesus goes on in verse 31. And he says, now by chance, there was a priest who was going down that road. And Jesus uses this, I think, very deliberately right here because priests in that time were, were a symbol of hope, all right? The priests were, were, were kind of what we would maybe consider as clergy today. They were people who went about supposedly doing good. And so Jesus is creating right here an obviously past opportunity. A priest is going down the road, and maybe if that poor man had looked up from his place in the ditch and his brokenness, he would have seen the priest coming, and he would have thought, here's somebody that's going to help me. But as Jesus tells his story, he says, but when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, 
who maybe didn't have quite the rank of the priest. Maybe the priest was up here, and the Levite was just a, well, he, he, was a, he, was a he was a devout person. He was like a, a, a deacon in the church, if you will, right? A good guy, right? And, and he knew the word, and, and so maybe he would be more willing to help, but it, but it says that, that, that when he saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. Now, there's a couple things you've got to notice in this text. It's super important. Number one, Jesus, as Jesus tells his story, these guys were not unaware. They, they weren't like they were going by at 70 miles an hour and didn't realize there was a guy in the ditch. Several years ago, uh, out west, a friend of mine was telling a story that a guy was driving down the interstate to go to work one day, and he saw a tennis shoe on the side of the road. And he thought, wow, that's weird. One tennis shoe. He thought about that all day long. And, um, and so uh, on his way back that night, he looked, and sure enough, that one tennis shoe, tennis shoe still there. Something about it bothered him. He, he cut a Yui in one of those median deals, and he goes up on the side of the road, and he, he, he gets out of his car to check on this one tennis shoe. And as he looks over the side of, of that road, it was kind of a mountainous road or a bit of interstate, over the side of the road, he sees that there's a motorcycle that's crashed on the other side of the road. The guy is down there with like two broken legs, barely alive, but because he saw and thought about that one tennis shoe, they were able to get help and the guy recovered. It's a great story, but that's not the kind of story that Jesus is telling right here, all right? Jesus is telling a story where both of these guys are walking on their way. They see a guy in obvious need, but they pass by on the other side without even checking to see if he's dead and obviously he needs help now Jericho is close to the Dead Sea which is about about 16 I'll say 20 miles north uh, of, uh, of where Jerusalem is and if you know anything about the topography of that part of the country Dead Sea is one of the lowest places on earth right and Jerusalem is in the mountains and Jesus says that they were going down the, the priest and the Levite were going down the road or down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means, and I always looked at this and I thought, well, maybe they were worried about being ceremonially unclean because the Old Testament had a lot of rules about cleanliness and about touching dead animal or dead people or, or people that were ill right here. But Jesus has told this story in such a way that we recognize that these guys were not going from Jericho to Jerusalem. Rather, they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Their service to this man was in no way, as I understand it, going to be impinged by their helping um, this poor guy that's broken down at the side of the road. I don't think their duties had anything to do with that situation. They don't even have that excuse as Jesus tells his story. They're just two guys who were supposedly supposed to represent God and be on fire for God and servants of God, but when they see an obvious need, they pass by on the other side. Now remember the question that's being answered right here. Jesus, Jesus posed a question, or what is the greatest commandment, right? This man poses now another question back to Jesus, then who is my neighbor? Who is this person I'm supposed to love as I love myself? And then Jesus continues. He brings in now a compassionate stranger into the mix, but not just any stranger. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he brought out two denarii, and he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay when I come back. 
Jesus, Jesus pulls together something right here that really had to kind of insult the majority of the people that are listening to this story because they're asking, answering the question, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells a story about a guy who's making a trip. He gets in trouble. Two guys who should have helped didn't. But then a third guy shows up. Wonderful, right? Except the third guy is one of those pesky Samaritans. If you know much about the Samaritans, you know that they were just absolutely hated by the Jewish people that were in, in, the, in the world at that time. And part of that is understandable. We're, we're not 100% sure where the Samaritans came from, but most Bible scholars believe that the Samaritans were the people that were left behind when Nebuchadnezzar swept through and brought the majority of the people, city-dwelling people, into exile in Babylon. What Nebuchadnezzar normally would do is he would take away the kind of city dwellers and the elites and he would move them to another place in the world. And then he would move in another group of, of people to kind of rule in the city while the rural people who were the farmers and the agrarian kind of people continued to keep the, the agricultural activities going on in that particular area. And they were supervised or ruled by outsiders that were loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. That seemed to be kind of the plan. That's part of the reason why by the time the New Testament church arrives in the world, every single Grecian city where the Apostle Paul goes, there's a Jewish community there. Because there was, a, there was a big dispersion of the Jewish people, right? And, and they, they were living all over the world after the exile that, that we learn about in, in, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. Nonetheless, it seems that this Samaritan group of people had kind of intermarried with some of the outsiders that were brought in, and they, they had a worship that was sort of worship of God, but not really a worship of God. They had their own temple for a while, but then it was just demolished by the zealots at some point in about 6 AD. They had kind of desecrated the temple of God with human bones. There had been a, a rivalry going back and forth. No one liked the Samaritans in the Jewish community, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people at all. But Jesus chooses to use this people group to bring in this compassionate person and so he goes and he he it says that he had compassion on him that's a very special kind of word the word is only applied to Jesus in the gospels outside of this passage nowhere else in the bible does it talk about this attitude of one person to another except if it's talking about Jesus who had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is a, this is a, deep, a deep emotional uh, feeling right here. And this is shocking in a sense because and it had to be a shocking to the apostles because if you read back in Luke the ninth chapter verses 51 or so, James and John, the sons of thunder, are wanting to call down fire from God on a Samaritan village because the Samaritans didn't treat Jesus in the way that they thought uh, Jesus should have been treated. But by, by Acts the 8th chapter, you recognize just how big of a story this, or effect this story had had on Luke, who wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. And Jesus at this point switches the conversation. What is the greatest commandment? Well, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I get that, Jesus, but who's my neighbor? Who's the, who's the person that's my little circle that I've got to love like myself? Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story about a guy that no one knew who got beat up on a road going from here to there. And two guys that should have taken care of him didn't, but one guy that no one likes saw him and said, I can't pass by. I've got to do something about this. And so he does something about it. He, he fixes a guy up. He stops on his journey. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an end. He spends a considerable amount of money to provide for that man's health care. And then he goes on his journey, but he says, if there's any more expenses incurred, I'll pay for it when I return. And then Jesus 
comes back and he asks the third and maybe most important question of the day. Who is neighborly? Who is really going to be neighborly? In verse 36, Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Once again, Jesus asked this lawyer the question, okay, buddy, so you want to have this little intellectual discussion? You want to have a little talk about what it means to love God, love others, and who are we supposed to love? I'll tell you a story, then you give me an answer. And he finishes, and he said, okay, okay, what's the correct answer to this story? Who is the real neighbor? Who's neighborly? (laughs) I love it because in verse 37, he can't say the word Samaritan. (laughs) He can't bring himself to use the the, the ethnic classification that Jesus had used for this guy. He simply says, the one who showed him mercy. Remember that the answer to this question answers the original question. Who's going to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the reason this whole conversation is happening right here, church. The man asked, who, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Love God, love others. Who do I love in the others category? I know the whole God thing, that's pretty clear. But what about loving other people? Well, let me tell you a story. Here's the other people. Our reaction to our neighbors is an honest indicator of where our faith in Jesus Christ really is. That's what Jesus is saying right here to not just this lawyer, but to all of us today. As James would say later, faith without works is dead and, and, and would you have stopped on the side of that road? Before you answer that question, let me just tell you about something that happened years ago. There were a group of guys that went on a campus of a Bible college, a pretty large Bible college. And they got a whole group of young men and women, and they said, look, we, we need you guys to help us record some stuff that's going to be sent out to evangelize the world, right? And, and so, so we're going to give you an appointment. This is a very, very important thing. We're on a very tight schedule. We need to make sure that you are in the studio at the time that you're given. And then they're doing a study here, but the kids don't know this, right? So during, in, in the midst of this, they plant a, a guy that is in need of medical assistance. He looks like a vagrant, but he's in need of medical assistance immediately in between where they were going to park their cars and the building in which they were going to go make their recordings. So they've got this all set up, right? And the day of the, day of the morning of the, of the great experiment comes. One by one, these, these kids come to, to deliver, to make the recording, to send out to the world, to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ. And, and while they do that, they, they encounter this guy, obviously right there on the college campus. He's kind of a vagrant looking guy, but he needs medical assistance. It's obvious. He's not just sleeping. He's in trouble. <laughs> and they, they watch to see how many of these kids were, were, were going to be well, going to be Samaritans, going to be good Samaritans. They had 40 of them. And as the day went on, they, they put pressure on some of them. They're like, look, look, we, we've got to hurry up right here. And, and they, kind of, they kind of built this up. And here's the remarkable statistics that they found out. And this is back in 1973. I, I think maybe it might be better then than it would be now. But at least in 1973, when they did this study, which I know it's old, 60% of those kids who were on their way to make a recording, to tell the world about the love of Jesus Christ, stepped over, walked around, or completely ignored a guy in their path 
that was in obvious need of assistance. Sometimes we look at the teachings of Jesus and we say, well, Jason, that was 2,000 years ago and there's a lot of water that's flowed under the bridge since then. People have to be different. The world has to be different. Yes, in some little ways it is, but the core things we struggle with are still the same then as they are now. (laughs) Maybe one of the greatest questions for us this morning, and we'll use this as we close, is simply this. Are we going to walk past or will we stop and help? You and I both know the challenges to stopping and helping in life, right? We don't want to get down and get into that mess. We know that there's going to be, there's going to be demands on our, our time and on our emotions and on our, and on our, 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 our resources, both, both mentally and physically. <laughs> we, we get that, and sometimes it's just easier for us to, to kind of try to step outside of that responsibility, try to kind of steer clear of those places and those challenges that God has intentionally put in our path. There's some of us here today that are, that are living our lives like the Samaritan, though. We're, we're not stepping outside of those, of those, of those rough spots. We're, we're pursuing the opportunities that God has given us. We are going to answer that call and say, yeah, I'm willing to stop. Notice as Jesus finishes this, the, the, disciple, or the, the lawyer says, well, it's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus finishes with this simple phrase, as I will today as well. He said, you go and do likewise. I don't need to explain to you what this means for you, Mr. Lawyer. You go and do the same thing. The road will not be the road between Jerusalem and Jericho because we don't live there. Likely the people that we encounter are not going to be beat up lying in a ditch because their clothes were taken from them because clothes just aren't as valuable in our world as they were in theirs. But there will be people who are on the side of the road of life. People who are broken and wounded and and in need of somebody to help them. It might be a child. It might be an adolescent teenager. It might be a, a, a woman or a man in their middle age or even elderly person. They may look like they need help or on the surface or they may be somebody that it doesn't, it isn't obvious that they need that assistance. But these people, all of them, exist in our world today. And you and I fall into one of those three groups of people. Some of us are <laughs> the priests and the Levites. We know all about what we're supposed to do. But when those opportunities are right there on the side of the road, we find ourselves skirting those opportunities, geniusly looking as though we didn't see what God clearly is laying on our heart to do. And some of us are our Samaritans. We may never get recognized for it or even appreciated on a grand scheme for the little things that we've done for the kingdom. No one may notice the the nights that we stayed up and held the hand of someone whose hand need, hand need held, or the finances we poured into a life that no one, that maybe just seems like it's an empty cup, that they didn't really accomplish anything, but, but we serve a God who does. We serve a God who says, you see this story? You know the moral of the story? Yeah. You go and do that. You go and be that light in the darkness. 
You will be that hand when there is no hand. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. And oh, by the way, your neighbor is that person that your path crosses, no matter where you are and no matter who they are. Maybe one of the most common stories in the Bible, but maybe one of the most powerful stories about what love really is and how love works. I pray, church, that we all, every day, become more and more like that little Samaritan in our quiet and humble way, doing what we can to mend up the brokenhearted and to fix the wrongs in this world. Let's stand together, church. If you have a need this morning, you know you can always come as we sing.